Hakai Magazine explores science, society, and the environment from a coastal perspective. Today's feature article is Whales in the Cliff Face. An exposed prehistoric seafloor is a hotspot for ancient whale remains, and now an international team is helping unravel their mysteries. Written by Devin Badal and narrated by Adam Dubow. Stephen Suntalk pushes through a tangle of blackberry bushes. It's a grey July morning on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, and the smell of smoke from a wildfire to the north mixes with the briny sea breeze. Suntalk looks up for a moment, gazing at the pale sky, then picks his way down a beach access clogged with tree trunks. Along the shore, the tide has retreated, revealing an expanse of boulders coated in blankets of slick, verdant algae. Seagulls wheel overhead as the waters of nearby Muir Creek flow into the Salish Sea. Suntalk works as a criminal defense lawyer in Victoria, British Columbia's capital city, but he spends much of his spare time in the service of science, collecting rare fossils that he donates to museums. For at least a decade and a half, he has searched shores and river gorges across Vancouver Island, collecting a wide variety of fossilized specimens, including the dental plate of a previously unknown fish, Canadotus suntoki, which paleontologists named after him, and a rare species of crab from a beach near Campbell River where the species was once plentiful. But of the many sites he checks regularly, few match the rock formations along Muir Creek Beach when it comes to vertebrate fossils. In some spots, the sandstone cliffs and intertidal boulders are studded with fossil shells and bits of fossilized bone that date to more than 23 million years ago. It's in this ancient boneyard that Suntok has made some of his most intriguing discoveries, the fragmentary remains of ancient whales that lived and died in the ocean here tens of millions of years ago. This morning, Suntok has agreed to take me along for a visit to this fossil site. In the distance, lush green forest spills over the tops of the cliffs that border the beach. As we slowly approach the site, weaving along the slippery beach rocks, Suntok begins scanning every boulder we pass for fossils. Up close, the curved, overhung cliff face looks barren and austere, like something from a sci-fi movie set on another planet. Each layer of stratigraphy is a stark stripe of brown, beige, or gray, and some are flecked with white shells. These rocks date to an epoch known as the Oligocene, which stretched from 33.9 to 23 million years ago. It was a time of global cooling, when grasslands expanded on land, and mammals such as horses, camels, and primates began spreading out. Suntok slides a pair of reading glasses onto his nose, then hunches down and rolls onto his back to get a better look at a low shelf near the base of the cliff. Fossils can sometimes be extremely difficult to spot, he explains. The first vertebrate fossils he found at Muir Creek belonged to an extinct species of Oligocene whale, but initially, all he could see on the surface of the rock was a tiny half-moon-shaped irregularity. It was the tip of a fossilized bone. Subsequent excavation revealed three fossil vertebrae locked in the rock. Since then, Suntok has scoured this beach dozens of times. It always looks different, he says, because the waves chip away at the cliffs, revealing new surfaces to check. At the base of the cliff, Suntok continues poring over the low shelf, 
checking small irregularities in the rock. Soon, he spots a sliver of fossilized bone, possibly a small fragment of a rib from an ancient marine mammal. But Suntok opts to leave it in place. It's just a scrap, and removing it without the right tools would result in damage. He's only carrying a hammer and a chisel today. In British Columbia, fossils found on Crown land are protected as heritage objects under the Land Act, and fossil hunters are required to report major finds so that skilled researchers can take them out with the proper tools and methods. But it's good practice to report fossils whenever they are found. Suntalk is patient when it comes to fossil hunting. He has seen for himself how precious these pieces of fossilized bone can be for the researchers who study ancient whales and other marine life. Everything I've found is just a rock, until a paleontologist who knows what they're doing studies this thing and describes it and puts flesh on the bone, he says. Before that, it's just a curiosity in my cabinet. Each whale fossil, after all, is a potential clue to the long and complex story of cetaceans, and to the dramatic transformations they underwent over millions of years. Moreover, the study of ancient whales has taken on new relevance in an era of rapid climate change. A better understanding of the remarkable evolution of cetaceans could assist researchers and conservationists alike in protecting whales in the future, as these leviathans are confronted with the increasingly harsh realities of a world dominated by humans. Whales are among the largest animals to ever exist on Earth, with some adult blue whales reaching 180 tons, nearly 21 times the weight of a Tyrannosaurus rex. And the long history of whales, which spans more than 50 million years, is chock full of surprises. The earliest whales lived near water, but not in it, and they looked very different from the whales we know today. Pachycetus, for example, was a wolf-sized animal with four legs, a long snout, and a big tail. It hunted small prey along the coastal margins of Pakistan some 50 million years ago. But what links Pachycetus and the other early whales to modern cetaceans is a distinctive anatomical feature they all share. A bulbous structure in their ears known as an involucrum. This ancient structure may assist today's whales and dolphins in hearing underwater. Early whales also had distinctive double-pulley ankle bones seen only in even-toed hoofed mammals, like camels and cows, which are now understood to be whales' closest relatives. As cetaceans evolved, forelimbs became flippers, nostrils shifted back to become blowholes, and legs eventually disappeared. It took whales about 10 million years to transition from land to sea, and they may have done so for a variety of reasons, which include escaping predation on land and capitalizing on abundant marine prey. But once whales were completely aquatic, they spent the next 40 million years adapting fully to life in the ocean. For much of this time, most cetaceans were little bigger than a humpback whale. Then, beginning around 4.5 million years ago, whales underwent another remarkable transformation. Many began bulking up dramatically, eventually reaching their current extreme sizes. That allowed them to bump up the amount of prey they consumed in one gulp, swim vast distances to reach places with abundant food sources, and fight off most marine predators. That's the basic broad trajectory, but huge gaps remain in our knowledge of whales, including how baleen evolved in some species. And that's where whale fossils come in. 
Fossil bones preserve enormous amounts of information, and whale fossils from the Oligocene era are particularly valuable, given the many changes that cetaceans went through at that time. The trouble is that marine fossils from that era are exceedingly difficult to find in most parts of the world. Sea levels during the Oligocene were much lower than today, so fossilized marine life from that time tends to lie deep beneath the ocean, beyond the reach of paleontologists. But in a few parts of the world, scientists have discovered rock formations on land that are littered with these rare Oligocene marine fossils. The Pacific Northwest is one such place. Sometimes, when whales and other marine animals died in the shallow oceans of the Oligocene, their skeletons were buried by sediment on the seafloor. Over time, the sediment hardened into layers of rock, and the bones sandwiched between these layers slowly petrified, becoming fossils. Eventually, major geological processes pushed these Oligocene layers above sea level in the Pacific Northwest. At localities like Muir Creek, strong waves and heavy winter rains batter the cliff faces, eroding the rock and revealing the fossils within. It's basically kind of a combination of the right conditions 25 million years ago and then the right conditions today, says Victoria Arbor, the curator of paleontology at the Royal BC Museum in Victoria. She and a recent University of Victoria graduate, Elizabeth Rolichek, have been trying to identify a collection of cetacean fossils from Muir Creek and nearby Kirby Creek and piece together the stories they tell about whales in the Pacific long ago. On a midsummer morning in a darkened gallery at the Royal BC Museum, Arbor and Rolichek lead the way through a new exhibit on killer whales. Whale calls echo and blue lights swirl across the killer whale models and free willy memorabilia as Arbor, on maternity leave, pushes a stroller holding her newborn son Oswald, or Ozzy for short. A leading expert on armored dinosaurs, Arbor clearly loves all things paleontology. Her Twitter feed brims with artists' reconstructions of dinosaurs and other extinct animals, and she is fond of fossil-themed fashion. Today, she's sporting a collared shirt teeming with tiny dinosaurs. Behind her, Rolichek, the 23-year-old former student she's mentoring, flashes a bright smile. Animated and self-assured, Rolichek lights up when she gushes about ancient whales. Midway through the exhibit, the museum's collections manager joins us. He's pushing a cart stacked with some of the fossils found at Muir Creek. Most of these specimens, Rolichek explains, are marked with information about where they were found and by whom. The bones and fragments, ranging from complete vertebrae and rib bones to a piece of skull, were collected by fossil finders, including Suntalk, over the past 60 years. All of the specimens, however, were sitting in storage, waiting to be identified and studied when Arbor and Rolichek began their research project in the fall of 2020. It's not uncommon for fossils to sit in museum drawers for decades before they are investigated, says Arbor, who joined the Royal BC Museum in 2018. Sometimes there's insufficient people power at museums to study them, and other times it's a lack of people with the right research background for a project. But often curators must wait until a collection holds enough specimens to tell a story. That's why paleontologists urge fossil hunters to donate their finds to a university or museum where they can be preserved for future studies. A single rib from Muir Creek wouldn't have prompted a research project, Arper explains, but by the time Rolichek, then an undergraduate student, joined her lab in early 2020, 
the collection had accumulated enough specimens to ensure an interesting takeaway. Rolachek was majoring in biology and earth and ocean sciences at the time, but had become enamored with paleobiology, a branch of paleontology that investigates the evolution of fossil species and how they fit into ancient ecosystems. She was considering a career in paleobiology and contacted Arbor to hear how women fare in this field, which is still dominated by men. With Arbor's encouragement, she began volunteering in the Royal BC Museum's paleontology lab, and after the museum was forced to close its doors in 2020 due to the pandemic, Arbor invited her to assist with a study of the Muir Creek fossil collection. Rolachek leaped at the opportunity. Access to the museum labs was restricted, however, so starting in the fall, the two women met at the museum every Wednesday evening after closing and rolled a mobile lab, a plastic cart stocked with marine fossils, measuring tapes, and sketch pads, into the public natural history gallery. Next to a life-sized mammoth sculpture known affectionately as Wooly, they got to work, poring over the specimens by lamplight as the ambient nature sounds from the exhibit played on a loop, the soundtrack to their research. For Rolachek, analyzing all those unknown marine fossils with Arbor in such a surreal environment was both intimidating and exciting. I had these fossils that no one had ever looked at and that had never been published about, she says, still marveling at the experience. To gather vital data, the pair examined each fossil carefully, photographing, sketching, and measuring it. Then they compared each to similar-looking bones from known species. In this way, they identified the body parts and determined that the fossils belonged to whales that roamed the world's seas during the Oligocene. This was a time of major tectonic activity. When South America and Australia drifted north, splitting away from Antarctica, a path was cleared for a new circumpolar current. Global temperatures dropped, sea levels fell, and the new current caused widespread upwelling, a process that pushes nutrients from the deep up to the surface, resulting in localized plankton blooms. And this may have helped spur the evolution of baleen whales, called mysticetes, a name derived from Greek words meaning mustache whale, as they began to swap their teeth for long keratinous plates and gradually shift from hunting for meals to filter feeding. At the same time, echolocation was developing among toothed whales, and this ability to detect distant things with the aid of reflected sound waves allowed them to navigate in deep, dark waters and hunt the prey that flourished there. This combination of diversification and tough-to-find fossils, says Robert Bosenecker, a whale paleontologist at the College of Charleston in South Carolina, is what makes the Oligocene so damn interesting. For Rolachek, the next step was to gather research on the cetacean species thought to have lived in the Northeast Pacific during the Oligocene. She soon discovered that the Pacific Ocean was once a terrifying place where many predators lurked. One of the most nightmarish was an ancient whale with a huge, eel-like body, serrated teeth, and tiny hind limbs that couldn't have supported its enormous body. Its name was Basilosaurus, meaning King Lizard. Originally classified as a reptile, Basilosaurus dwarfed the other early whales. It measured more than 15 meters from snout to tail, about the length of a standard bowling lane, and evidence suggests that it ate smaller cetaceans, as some killer whales do today. Basilosaurus is thought to have gone extinct before the beginning of the Oligocene, but some may have survived in certain areas after that, Rolachek says. 
It's not like they just all died off right on the first Tuesday of the month, she explains. As Rolachek continued delving into her cetacean research, Arbor began contacting paleontologists who specialize in whale evolution. She knew that she and Rolachek would need assistance in identifying the species represented in the Muir Creek collection, and after years of rubbing shoulders with other paleontologists, Arbor knew who to ask. People sometimes think science is very siloed and competitive, she says, and for sure that also happens, but it's not all like that. Often, she notes, getting help is as simple as calling up a colleague and saying, hello, friend who knows random whale vertebrae, what is this? So that's exactly what she did. One of those colleagues was Nick Pyanson, the curator of fossil marine mammals at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. Pyanson is a vertebrate paleontologist who has spent many years studying whales and he was willing and able to help. One of Suntalk's fossil finds, a partial scapula with fine fractures, posed a unique challenge, says Rolachek. After extracting it from the rock, Suntalk set the fossil in plaster to prevent damage. The casing protected the specimen well, but it permanently hid one side, making the fossil difficult to identify. But Suntalk's field notes contained a vital clue. Near the shoulder blade fragment, the lawyer found a fossilized atlas, the vertebra from the base of a whale's skull. And when Rolachek and Arbor showed the specimens to Pyanson on a video call, he immediately recognized the small bumps on the outer edge of the fossilized atlas. They were a telltale skeletal trait of ancient river dolphins. Rolachek and Arbor were delighted. The close proximity of the two fossils at Muir Creek suggested they may have come from the same individual. River dolphins are cetaceans, and the earliest species seem to have thrived in saltwater before they eventually shifted into river habitats. Today, river dolphins are found in the warm waters of South America as well as various river systems in Asia. But during the Oligocene, some species clearly inhabited the cold waters of the Northeast Pacific. As the research progressed, Arbor and Rolachek identified two additional groups of cetaceans among the fossil bones in the Muir Creek collection a Basilosaurus, and a possible member of the genus Adiocetus, which includes small baleen whales that had yet to lose their teeth. A pair of mystery vertebrae still partially embedded in rock, and a few other backbones in the collection, seem to be of the same general size and shape as those thought to belong to Adiocetids and described in publications by other researchers. But that was just a hypothesis. Paleontologists had studied the distinctive skulls of Adiocetids but they had yet to fully describe other parts of the skeleton, and Rolachek and Arbor didn't have a skull to guide them. But a fossil whale skeleton, sitting nearly 4,000 kilometers away in Pyanson's lab in Washington, D.C., held hope for clinching the identification of the mystery vertebrae. The Smithsonian Institution is home to the largest collection of whale fossils in the world. Examples of nearly every lineage of whale can be found at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., or in the museum's storage facility in nearby Maryland. The Smithsonian preserves how the world once was, Pyamson says on a balmy October morning, after rushing in a few minutes late for our appointment at the National Museum of Natural History. The blue-eyed paleontologist has taken part in scientific expeditions to every continent on Earth, including Antarctica, but today, attired in dress shoes and a collared shirt, despite the stifling humidity, he would blend in with many of the city's politicians and executives. 
Indeed, on a crowded sidewalk, Washington's elite would have no idea they're standing next to one of the leading authorities on whale evolution. Pyatson leads the way through the exhibits and down to the laboratories and offices. As we cross the Sant Ocean Hall, he pauses under a cast of an early whale with four legs, Myocetus, which hangs from the ceiling. As I gaze at the dog-like skeleton in wonder, he points out a second huge cetacean suspended nearby, Basilosaurus, the giant eel-shaped whale that Rolichek identified in the Muir Creek collection. The 19th century founders of natural history museums could not have imagined the amount of damage that humans would wreak on the world's ecosystems, and all that would be lost because of this, Pyanson says. They merely collected everything they could. Over the years, curators at the Smithsonian's 11 museums have added about 145 million specimens and other objects to the collection, from fossils and shells to modern art and space shuttles. As Pyanson peers over his mask, which is emblazoned with a graphic visualizing the global average temperature rise over the last 150 years, he says we need such records of past worlds. Museums not only protect the past, they can help us navigate the challenges of the present and future. Sea level change, ocean acidification, and habitat loss, those are all features that we see through geologic time, he says, and we're living through them in human lifetimes. Learning how ancient whales adapted in the past can provide context for how they'll fare in the future. The story of what will happen has been written before, he adds. In the East Wing, one floor below the museum's spacious public halls, Pyatson ducks into the dimly lit fossil marine mammal collections. It's a labyrinth of wooden cabinets that date back more than a century, and modern industrial shelving units packed with fossils, boulders, and protective plaster cases. He passes a large triceratops skull affixed to a wooden platform before turning down row 25 and opening the first cabinet. The drawers inside are lined with ribs, teeth, skulls, and other fossilized fragments, remnants of ancient whales. Stored in these seemingly endless rows are some of the Smithsonian's nearly 20,000 marine mammal fossils, Pyanson says, his voice almost drowned out by the ventilation system. From a nearby drawer, he pulls out the honey-colored cast of a foot that belonged to a 47-million-year-old whale called Rhodocetus. Like otters, beavers, and other semi-aquatic mammals, this whale may have had webbed feet, he explains. It's an intriguing mental image, but such specimens are much more than curiosities. At the Smithsonian, scientists can compare and contrast cetacean fossils from different geological eras and climatic periods, gaining new insights into the adaptability and resilience of whales. Another floor down is the vertebrate paleontology lab. Laid out on tables in the middle of the room are two fossilized skeletons of small, toothed baleen whales from the site in the Pacific Rim National Park Reserve in British Columbia. They likely hold the key to officially identifying several vertebrate from Muir Creek. In 2012, armed with a rock saw and a permit from Parks Canada, Pyanson excavated these two skeletons and brought them back to the Smithsonian, where he and a large team began exposing them from the surrounding rock matrix. Today, the skeletons are nearly ready to be studied, and Pyanson is now certain that one is an adiacid. The other, he explained later by email, may belong to that family or possibly to another group of early baleen whales with teeth. 
But what's generating real buzz is that both specimens have backbones associated with well-preserved skulls. Now we have a lot more of the puzzle, Pineson explains, as he lifts vertebrae and sharp teeth. That gives you identity. By discussing the Smithsonian's adiocid specimen with Pineson, Rolichek was able to confirm her conclusion that the mystery vertebrae from Muir Creek also belonged to an adiocid. It was a very rewarding example of international sleuthing. The newly exposed skeleton at the Smithsonian gives you security in connecting adiocid skulls with vertebrae of this size and shape, Pineson says. But piecing together the existing fossil record is only part of the work for Pineson and other whale paleontologists. Cetaceans, he explains, have a deep evolutionary history that goes back through geologic time. By studying and analyzing this immense record of change, Pineson hopes to deepen our understanding of these animals, not just for the ones that are extinct, but for the ones that are still alongside us. It's a history laden with information, and though some chapters are still missing, paleontologists hope that it may offer clues as to how the world's whales will fare in the age of rapid climate change. In his 2018 book, Spying on Whales, Pineson assembles some of these clues. He notes, for example, that whales at the far extremes of body size may have a very tough go in the future. The giants of the cetacean world, such as the blue and fin whales, may have bulked up in order to migrate long distances and become more efficient feeders, but their immense size now puts them at greater risk of ship strikes and becoming entangled in fishing gear. Other whales that become highly specialized in their diets, such as certain killer whale populations that feed exclusively on salmon, could be wiped out in places like the Pacific Northwest if their food source succumbs to rising water temperatures. So, can whales adapt quickly enough to survive the Anthropocene? Piuson says it remains to be seen. Cetaceans have certainly proved themselves to be remarkably resilient over the past 50 million years. Still, some species may not survive the 21st century, says Piuson, while others will probably outlive us. On a warm July day, dog walkers meander contentedly across the sand at Muir Creek, hurling sticks for their eager companions. Near the beach access, a young family sets out for an afternoon on the sand, chatting excitedly and searching the tall grass for harmless local snakes. For them, and for most people who come here, Muir Creek is a day trip, a getaway, a welcome reprieve from the daily 9 to 5. But for fossil enthusiasts and the paleontologists who study their finds, the beach offers something rare and important, an opportunity to peek more than 23 million years into the past. The cliffs at Muir Creek are strewn with ancient vestiges of aquatic life, and to Rolichek, this beach could be a huge stepping stone in understanding whale evolution in the Northeast Pacific. Much has changed since the Oligocene, but there's one thing that hasn't. The waters off Vancouver Island are still home to diverse populations of whales, from humpbacks to killer whales. But without major conservation efforts, without strong measures to slow the pace of climate change, some of these living whales could easily go the way of Bacillosaurus and other extinct cetaceans. And as paleobiologists know better than nearly anyone, once a species is lost, it's gone forever. It becomes just another fossil, just another backbone in the cliff face, Rolachek says. Find more coastal news and stories from Hackeye Magazine on our website at www.hackeyemagazine.com. 
All of our feature stories are part of the Hakai Magazine Audio Edition podcast, which you can subscribe to through your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, feel free to share it with your friends. And don't forget to like, comment, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.